Welcome listeners. This is Jonathan Yamasaki, co-host of Go Entrepreneur Yourself. And this is Richard Sobias, your smiley and sappy co-host all the way from the Silicon Valley slash San Francisco area. We are a podcast where we bring you local entrepreneurs and leaders from around the world to share their story about adversity, triumph, and lessons in leadership. The name of this podcast speaks for itself. We empower you with digestible, inspiring, and valuable content on starting your own business. Also, we dissect stories of success and reveal some of the raw truths and hardships of creating and maintaining your business. So we interview an array of entrepreneurs, people from early stage startups, and executive business owners. Today, we're switching it up by introducing Victoria's Song. Victoria began her career as a venture capitalist, investing in the fastest growing tech startups, and was featured on Forbes 30 Under 30 list for her investment success. With a unique blend of leadership, business, and self-development acumen, Victoria is now a leadership advisor to visionary founders and CEOs of the fastest growing tech company in Silicon Valley. She also has an exciting book, a recent Wall Street Journal bestseller, Bending Reality, How to Make the Impossible Probable. Now, for people tuning in in the gym, whether you're working out in the morning, driving to work, or listening at home, the only song we'll be vibing to today is Victoria's song. Victoria, thank you for coming to our show. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure to be here. Of course. Victoria, today we're happy to have you. And today we want to hear from you on your rise to becoming a venture capitalist and understand how you're empowering entrepreneurs daily as a leadership advisor. I am, like many of the listeners tuning in, interested in hearing how your journey motivated you to achieve success for yourself and for other entrepreneurs. Lastly, we want to scrape the tip of the iceberg with talking about your book, Bending Reality, How to Make the Impossible Probable. The book may sound abstract at first, but it's actually packed with tools and exercises for unlocking your hidden potential as an entrepreneur. We encourage you to sit and think about Victoria's messages and apply what you think will contribute for you being a great leader in your industry or startup. Awesome. Excited to jump in. But before we do that, I want to see if you're interested in our Fast Five. This is just a few questions to get to know you. Sure. <laughs> so let's You ask go. in a way that I don't feel like I have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could go off script here. <laughs> so I have a few questions for you. Let's start with this one. Which setting appeals to you the most? The beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Okay. Or you can have all of them in California. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) What is one new way that you've been relaxing your nervous system? Mm, Such a good question. I am in Park City right now. So I've been going for nice hikes here in the autumn weather with my two huskies. And yeah, that feels really calming when I'm in nature. Yeah, it's there's something about just looking at nature in general, right? That relaxes our nervous system, studies have shown. Mm-hmm. If you were an animal, who would be your natural predator? Oh, I mean, I immediately thought I would be a dolphin. So I guess <laughs> maybe a shark. <laughs> Funny hearing that from a venture capitalist. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> what value do you see in talking to people who don't always agree with you? I think the value there is, again, when your nervous system is calm, as you just started with, I do think it's easier to listen to viewpoints that are different from yours and to hear and understand someone even if you don't agree with it. Whereas when I think your nervous system is wound up, it's much harder to sit with a viewpoint you don't agree with or don't understand. Yeah. And I don't want to get into this too much, but I think our country is currently experiencing a lot of contraction, as you would say. That's why it's hard for us to maybe listen to each other, right? Yes. Somebody read the book. (laughs) (laughs) No shame, no tea. (laughs) And then lastly, this is going to be putting you on the spot, but sing part of the last song you listened to. (laughs) Ooh, okay. Uh, I mean, honestly, I was getting a massage and it was like, I feel like sacral chakra music or something on Spotify. I'm like, that's so specific. I already know. (laughs) I can already imagine it. (laughs) Are you sure you're not, we're not relaxing our nervous systems with all this imagery? (laughs) No, it's perfect. You know, let's, let's relax all the listeners tuning in right now. I love it. (laughs) Awesome. 
Thank you so much. That was the Fast Five. Victoria, tell us about your roots before um, in the in the past and, and how you got into the world of venture capital. Yeah, so I grew up in Los Angeles and I moved out to the East Coast in 2010 um, to attend college and business school. And I entered venture capital when I was 23 years old and it was kind of spontaneous. I was working for Harvard Business School writing case studies for them, which is like their curriculum. And one of the professors is also a venture capitalist. His name is Jeff Busking. And he had just written a book called Mastering the VC Game. And he gave a free copy to all the faculty. And so because of that, I got a chance to read it before like it officially came out. And it was the first time I was introduced to venture capital. And I asked to attend one of his luncheons that he does with the MBA students. And he was kind enough to let me join. And it was in that session that I expressed my interest in exploring VC and investing and he, you know, I, I must have made a good enough impression that he brought me in and I interviewed with his whole team. And then I broke into it in uh, about 2010 was when I did that. Um, and yeah, it was one of those random things that I didn't, yeah, I never graduated thinking that that's what I wanted to do. But serendipitously, I found myself into it, my way into it. And um, and it was a great ride. Like I love working with founders. I was, um, I think part of my talent of being a good judge of character and seeing people very clearly for their potential, which serves me now as a leadership advisor, also really served me then as someone who was able to back promising founders. I was able to see a potential in them when they were just a pitch deck, an idea, and a team. And before they built anything, and before there was any product market fit or any revenue, I was able to tell you know, what it took to win and who had it. Um, so yeah, I was doing that quite well. That's why I made the Forbes 30 under 30 list. And um, one of my first investments, we put about a million dollars into a company called Crashalytics mm -hmm. that got um, acquired by Twitter and it made our firm back like over $40 million. Um, and it was a great return on investment. And then, yeah, so that's sort of what started out my career. And then, um, yeah, fast forward, I realized that I love working with entrepreneurs, but I wanted to help them with so much more than just their business success. I wanted to really help them achieve a level of uh, thriving in all areas of their life. Um, and I didn't want the kind of success that cost our health, our marriage, our family, our well-being. I really wanted to support entrepreneurs to learn how to scale their businesses while feeling calm and confident and happy and fulfilled in their life as well. That's wonderful. Sometimes we, people don't see that all the time. All that's being shot to everybody is like the spotlight, the, the successful moments in an entrepreneur's life that people just don't see what's going on, I guess, behind the curtain. So thank you for mentioning that and the work that you're doing. I, I'm excited because, well, I, I want to get the audience to, to know a little bit about like, like a, a lot of times when people are talking about hearing from like people that worked in venture capital there's a lot of interpretations for what is a venture capitalist and people's opinions about them. And the most common is like Mark Cuban, Kevin O'Leary, those people in like Shark Tank. So stepping away from like what's on TV or what's good or bad of what people say about VCs, take us through what a venture capitalist is and maybe demystifying any myths on VCs. Yeah, so there are VC firms that write different size checks, but in general, a venture capitalist is someone who is identifying promising companies at a very early stage um, and taking on a lot of risk because usually it's at the early stages that you're most likely um, going to fail or there's just not enough data points to know if you have what it takes. Um, and so you're taking probably the largest risk in the company's life to invest those first dollars. Um, but as a result, the return profile is also most exciting because you can make you know 10x, sometimes even more than that, if you're really lucky. And uh, yeah, so I'd say a VC is someone who meets entrepreneurs and can see um, really a backing the talent, the person behind the idea, and also the idea and the market size of the opportunity. Um, but it is very, very risky, which is why I think sometimes you see things like the terms aren't very favorable to the founders or you might see some personalities as you're referring to. Um, but ultimately, I think, yeah, they're, they're just people who have the opportunity to invest in the future and uh, take big risks in doing that. 
So then when, when a person is like in a seed funding stage, so for our listeners, that's the first official equity funding for your startup. Typically, they raise those funds from like family, friends, and angel investors. I noticed that some startups get funding from venture capitalists. Why would an entrepreneur decide to go to a VC versus an angel investor? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for the most part, if you can, it's always better to try to fund it with like friendly money, at least when you're starting out. Um, I just think that the level of pressure that comes along with this professional venture capital money is um, is very high and it's not always necessary. And but I also know it's a very fortunate position to be someone in life who has money around you and has access to people who have money. Um, and so sometimes that's not an option. But I do think that there are now new platforms like AngelList that democratize it and make it easier for opportunities to get found across the country, across the world. And so hopefully that is making it easier to access capital that isn't always institutional money that still kind of gives you access to like syndicating from angels and, um, you know, friends and family, maybe like a degree away from you. And, you know, ultimately the other argument for why take VC money is that people say you want smart money, like money that comes with expertise and um, people who are operators and who've done this before who can guide you and mentor you. Uh, and that's not always the case from friends and family. Um, so there's pros and cons to both. Um, but I, for my perspective, where I said if I started a company, I would actually try to um, yeah, fund it myself or fund it through friendly money first. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I think that really helps to kind of paint a picture of like the difference between those two. Because sometimes... It, it can be confusing. You don't know who to really approach or who to ask, things like that. But it's it's nice when you put it into perspective of what they get done so that an entrepreneur and the listener here can know what where they can go, who they can go with when they're deciding to fund their business. So, Victoria, a huge part of our podcast is education. And I'm glad we're breaking down these terms, what they mean. And your role as a leadership advisor is unique in the sense that you get a window into the minds of entrepreneurs. So I am curious, why don't you explain to our audience what is a leadership advisor and what are their limits? Because that's something where we may confuse their role with something else, but why don't you clarify for everyone listening? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think everyone who does a version of my line of work calls it something different. So some people might call it an executive coach or CEO coach. I call it a leadership advisor just because I feel like the coaching industry is um, kind of confusing and very noisy today. Um, and so for me, when I say leadership advisor, I'm really referring to someone who's looking for support in improving their leadership. So whether that is my ability to lead teams, my ability to come up with an inspiring vision that motivates my company, my ability to operationalize my culture's values so that the behaviors I want more of and the behaviors I want less of, I can create something that's enforcing that in the company. And uh, and that could also be you know strategic, like, okay, I'm scaling my business. I'm going from 100 to 500 employees. How do I make sure that I'm in the right mental, physical, and emotional state required to scale a company that fast and that big? Yeah. So it's sort of everything from the psychological aspect to the tactical to the strategic because of my background in venture capital, I think a lot of my clients like to work with me because I understand their context and I understand like what they're going through and, and you don't have to like explain terms to me when I'm supporting founders. So I think that that's partly why um, they enjoy working with me because I can help them on the business side of things and bring my VC hat to the table. And then I can also bring more of my training in executive coaching to the table as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you incorporate that part because we may have grown up thinking that the biology or the psychology is separate, right, from the business part. But one thing I, I think we're realizing is that we're everything's connected. And if we're able to heal, then it makes us a better entrepreneur, which may not seem intuitive mm -hmm. at first, right? We may think, I'm just doing everything I was told to do. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I think if we don't heal whatever might be driving our desire to prove something, you know, it's going to affect every part of our business, whether like it's the motivation behind what we're trying to prove in starting our business to 
how we treat our employees and the kind of cultures we build, if it's thriving off of fear and competition or, you know, to kind of the stress and overwhelm and burnout that we're likely to put on ourselves, you know, if we don't heal kind of what's underlying some of those drivers to begin with. So I'm sure we'll dig into that more. Yeah, that's interesting you bring that up because I, I actually recently read a post from Justin Khan from Twitch. And I'm just going to read this for you because I, I want to hear what you think about this, Victoria. So um, he said, I'll never forget what I told uh, Michael Schiebel, my Twitch co-founder. One day we could reach to make a million bucks. At the time, we even the thought that of that was wild. We eventually blew past his goal, selling social cam in 2012 for 60 million. And then Twitch in 2014 for 970 million. The funny thing was that even after exceeding my wildest expectations, it reset me to a new standard and I wasn't any happier. I was just holding more things. My own accomplishments were not enough. Uh, I looked around me uh, to my friends who had founded Drop, Dropbox and Airbnb. And I think all, all that relates to where there's something deeper in a lot of entrepreneurs and, and that almost as their cup isn't filled even after everything else that they have accomplished. So why do you think that from a lot of founders like Justin Khan or, or other people in like Silicon Valley feel this way? Yeah, I think it's honestly a lot reason why a lot of people find me and want to do this work. And it's a part of the book as well. Actually, Inventing Reality, I discuss in detail why I believe this is the case. And, you know, just to give a little bit of it here, I would say that, um, you know, there are three phases that I see everyone go through, whether it's an entrepreneur or someone who is um, joining their first company out of school. And the first phase is wanting to prove that we matter in the world. And we're wondering, like, do I matter? Do I have anything worth offering? Do I have anything worth contributing? And what I have found, especially with entrepreneurs and the clients who are very high achieving, is that they have something that they're holding on to. Maybe it was being bullied in school. Maybe it was a heartbreak. Maybe it was a loss of a loved one at an early age. But there's something really painful that they are kind of holding on to and wanting to avoid happening to them. Um, maybe it was a, a certain comment or maybe it's the fear of not being smart enough, but whatever it is, they're kind of carrying that in this first phase of wanting to kind of protect themselves from humiliation, from failure, from being laughed at, from being bullied again or ridiculed. That's phase one. And I think a lot of people start companies from that phase, right? So their their first companies are often trying to prove to themselves they're smart enough, they are talented enough, they have what it takes to succeed in this world. Um, they want the respect and um, respect of their peers. You know, they want to reach a certain echelon of status. And so I believe that this phase is like kind of a necessary one to kind of go through and graduate from. But I think the problem is when people don't know that they're in that phase and they can spend their whole careers in that phase and it's dangerous. Um, and so when I hear Khan's comment there, I feel like he's sort of aware that a lot of people were maybe starting companies from that place of like wanting to matter. And then I think we graduate that phase when we realize, hopefully for those who succeeded at least once with their companies, they start to realize like, wow, I created something that mattered. Like I do matter. My talents matter. I um, I have skills and talents that are valuable and that people are paying for and that, you know, I can be almost paid to be myself. And that's sort of the graduation of the first phase is into this feeling of I do matter. And I think that once we've stabilized this feeling of our worth and our self-esteem and we know that we matter, then the third phase we enter is I want to work on something that matters. Like I want to contribute my gifts for good. And I think this is the phase that we often find, you know, the Bill Gates of the world, people who've kind of been around the block, had a lot of success, and now they're officially in a contribution mode. But I believe that um, the consciousness on the planet is shifting where now younger and younger people want to start companies that are not only successful, but that are impactful. And they don't consider that a nonprofit. They're actually like, I don't want to see it as for-profit or nonprofit or charity. I want to see businesses doing good in the world, right? From the way they treat their employees to the way they source their products to the impact of, on the customers. So luckily we are moving toward a phase where not only is this transition happening faster, but one thing to notice, and I think for those listening, is that what I've also seen is that it's sort of cool to do good now, which you know is obviously a better norm. However, what I've seen is that sometimes people are still wanting to prove their significance by like leaving their mark on the world. So they're like, I want to do good because I want to you know be known for what a good person I am, and it looks good to do good. So now there's a lot of 
young entrepreneurs who are trying to prove that they matter while kind of merging that with phase three, which is like, okay, I want to use my gifts for good, but I also want to make sure I leave my mark on the planet or else I'll feel like I didn't matter, you know? And so it's a little slippery. It's kind of like an onion that you need to peel back layers of. But I think the question to ask yourself if you're listening right now is just, why do I do what I do? Like, why do I want that? Like when you think about, for instance, I want my book to be successful. You want to, I want to ask myself, well, why do I want to be my book successful? Like, why is that the goal? Why is selling this many copies the goal? And when you get to the bottom of it, if you notice that there is a part of you that is, well, like I want to be successful so that I don't publicly fail. Well, then that's like you're proving something still, right? But if you're like, I want the book to be successful because I really want this message to reach as many people as possible and I trust that the right people will find it, then that's a more heart-centered place, you know, to have a goal. So I think all of us can be um, asking ourselves, why? Like, why do I want this? Yeah. And I think it's incredible. I, I see somewhere in an interview that you, I'm going to, I'm going to roughly quote you something along the lines of, I'm doing this because this is what I felt like after I've accomplished being at Yale, being at Harvard and accomplishing all these things as a, as a young entrepreneur. And now that you're doing that as part of your work, it, it's like you manifested something that you are trying to heal within yourself, but also give to others at the same time. Can you talk a little bit more about that if you feel comfortable? Absolutely. So I do think that the things that we've embodied um, for other people to share with other people are the things that we kind of live through ourselves. And so, you know, when when we have a message, anyone who has a message on the planet, you're really the first person that needed to hear that message ultimately. Um, And so I very much believe that part of the reason I feel so drawn to helping people make sure they're not looking in all the wrong places is because I was looking in all the wrong places to fill this void. And I realized that I never really felt the relief or the happiness or the joy, kind of like Justin Kahn mentioned, despite achieving the things that I was always told were really impressive and that everyone was like, wow, you went to Yale, you went to Harvard, you were a venture capitalist, like everybody wants that job. And no matter what, I just, it never hit me. It never internalized it. And it always felt like I was almost like a shell of a person because deep down I didn't really care. It was sort of like it didn't mean as much to me as it seemed to mean to the rest of the world. And living so disconnected between like you know, doing things that don't bring you joy, but that bring you prestige and impress other people is ultimately really empty way to live. And I think I was starting to notice all the things that I did that actually didn't feel good, but that said a certain message about me that I thought was important for the world to think about me. And ultimately, like now with my current business, like the work that I get to do, the leaders I get to support, the ripple effects on the planet through the leaders I support it's the first time in my life that I actually feel proud of the business I'm building, proud of the woman I am, proud of the human I'm becoming every day. Like there is a level of not just confidence and courage, but really like a deep, profound, like I'm sculpting this person that I'm becoming better and better. And um, and not better and better from a place of I'm not good enough, but better and better because I think that's just evolution, you know, to be the best version of ourselves, to profoundly love our lives. Like um, I think that's just, you know, the fun of being alive. And um, so anyway, what brings me joy is all I make time for <laughs> these days. Um, it matters less and less what, what's the external validation around that. Um, I live more and more for my heart and my joy and my contribution. And I've turned down the noise on external validation as much as I can, you know, but honestly, it's hard to, to mute it completely. But yeah, I, I, at least I, I'm honest with myself. It's always, again, I ask myself, like, why do I want that? And I hold myself with grace and compassion because sometimes I still catch my ego wanting things for the wrong reasons. And I don't say like, I'm disgusted by you. I just say like, okay, I understand. Like you don't feel safe. There's a part of you that's remembering when those girls were mean in school and bullied you and rejected you and you're afraid that that might happen to you again. And I just talked to her almost the way like a loving parent would. And by doing so, it's like it eases that part. And I think that when we don't accept where our ego can still be running the show, it just gets trickier and more clever at hiding from us, you know, like kind of being in the shadows. And so I feel like the more self-acceptance we can give ourselves, the more clearly we can actually see our motivations. Um, And I think setting a bigger context for our work allows us to ride the highs and lows of being an entrepreneur. So that bigger context could be a mission statement. It could be your purpose on the planet. Um, Some of the 
bigger context that I hold and say is like, you know, may this come true or something even better for the best and highest of all. So really remembering that it's not not just for me, but it's for you, it's for the planet. And then may I remove my personal agenda. May I impact millions and billions of lives anonymously. So really trying to remove the part where I need to feel important. And then the last part is may I be willing to even risk my own significance for the best and highest of all. Uh, And that one's the hardest one, I think, for my ego to really accept because it's scary because most people are stopped because they don't want to lose their significance. They don't want to ruin their reputation. They don't want to be laughed at. And so when I remind myself, like, may I be even willing to risk my own significance for this, it really puts me into this cleaner, aligned place with what I'm doing. Thank you, Victoria. I just wanted to say quickly that when I was reading about this in an interview you did with Authority Magazine, a lot of your words resonated with me because I was someone who was on a path to becoming a doctor. And years later, when I decided not to, I realized a lot of that drive was out of fear. It was out of fear of people thinking that I wasn't smart enough, the fear that my family thought I was far away doing something that wasn't going to benefit them. So a lot of it was fear driven. And when you started to talk about that, I, I, I realized it a little bit a, a few years ago, but when you put it into words, I was just like, yes, it kind of set me free because that's what I was thinking. I just didn't have the, the words to say it and to feel empowered. And that kind of leads us into our next question, actually. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. So then how are you empowering entrepreneurs in becoming the person that they've always dreamed of and more? I love that you said, Richard, free, like the word set you free, because I do believe that a huge part of my purpose and work with my clients is to give them freedom and freedom on every level. So freedom from the limiting beliefs that might be holding them back, the limitations of maybe being scarcity minded or lack and not having enough money to Um, make their dreams come true. So freedom of any financial limitations. Um, There's freedom of emotions. So emotional freedom to be able to not avoid any people in situations because you're afraid that you don't want to feel certain things, right? So for some of us, we might avoid feeling guilty or shame. So we don't want to let people down or we might avoid feeling embarrassed or like a failure. So we don't go after our bold dreams. But if we can have emotional freedom, then there won't be anything that we're afraid is going to happen. So then we start to live our life more boldly. So that's another freedom that I really um, care about. And ultimately, like it's really the freedom to express who you are at your fundamental, like your soul level, right? So not what you were taught, not what you were conditioned to believe, not the patterns that you learned from childhood, not what society tells you, but really like the freedom of your heart, the freedom of your soul to be who you're meant to be on this planet. That's what I believe I'm supporting with my clients. Yeah. In a lot of ways, you're empowering entrepreneurs to tap into their sustainable fuel, right? When you describe someone's mission, Mm -hmm. your purpose, those are ways to feel energized. So when you talked about burning out, when you remember those things as an entrepreneur, you can tap into the best parts of yourself. You can feel energized. You can feel the joy and love. So mm-hmm. I, I think those are really key to everyone listening <laughs> to remember if you are feeling in a funk. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of people are, are motivated by what I call like a toxic fuel of fear, for instance. And so that could be like the fear of time running out, fear of competition, the fear of being behind, the fear of no matter how much I do, there's never, there's always more to, more fires to put out. And that's like a very vigilant way to live. And I think it's a way a lot of entrepreneurs are wired to be like constantly in uncertainty, constantly in the unknown, constantly scanning their environment for threats, looking around the corner, what can go wrong. They have this impending doom generator that's very intelligent with all the fears and what if scenarios that can happen. And That is the fuel that I found is most common with everyone, especially entrepreneurs, Um, but it's the fuel that leads to burnout. It's the fuel that is rooted in contraction. And as you mentioned, um, Richard, with your story, like that was what kept you locked from what you were really meant to do. Um, And so when we disconnect from fear and instead connect to making our dreams bigger. So one way to overcome our fears is not just to make our fears go away, which can sometimes be very hard to just not believe something scary is going to happen. One way is kind of a shortcut is just actually make your dreams bigger than your fears so that you learn to walk with your fears and your dreams, right? Like when I launched my book, it wasn't that I wasn't scared that people were going to hate it and people might leave bad reviews and that people are going to laugh at me. It's not that those fears went away. It was that 
my vision of the impact that I want to boldly stand in on the planet and the message that I, I feel like I'm here to deliver and the people that I hope to serve and help, like that was bigger than my fears. And so I think like plugging into a more sustainable field that energizes you, that can pull you out of your fears is going to be like your mission, your vision, your sense of purpose. Um, if you want, there is a free exercise in the book around excavating your values, uh, which I believe that when we know what our values are, then we start to live more according to what lights us up versus what we think we should be doing. A lot of us are living according to shoulds because we don't want to feel bad or guilty for doing something we shouldn't be doing. Um, but if you understand what your values are, then you can start to make sure that your values are being honored at a 10 on a scale of one to 10. So you can apply that to yeah how you live your life. And so when we live according to our values, when we live according to our mission, when we do what's in our zone of genius, um, what feels like play for us. And so in the book, I mentioned how um, you know an athlete loves the game, whether it's basketball or football, there's like a love for the game that feels like they're playing a game, right? Whereas like an engineer loves problem solving and there's like a fun and a play feeling to that. Um, and so it is about like finding the thing that when you do it, like maybe hosting this podcast where it feels like you're just playing, you know? Um, and that is another place that you can tap into very sustainable, re-energizing source of energy versus the fear that really contracts you and makes you play small and burns you out ultimately. Yeah. And I just want to say that for folks who maybe come from a fight or flight, our fear upbringing, right? If you live in a neighborhood or you're in a community where there's always something that you have to be alert about, that sometimes does translate into your attitude or your approach as an entrepreneur. What you described, Victoria, is kind of remind me of the same narrative that you may grow up with where, okay, I always have to be thinking about someone, like you said, bullying me or putting Looking me down. Looking over my shoulder. Yeah. And that's we that just translates sometimes into business, but that's not sustainable. <laughs> yeah. You're really limited in the amount of success you can achieve. Like you might get a decent outcome, but you're not going to reach your full potential because just imagine like when you're walking down, looking over your shoulder, you're not tapping into your creativity. You don't have access to inspiration. You don't see as many possibilities, right? Because you're just like so hyper-focused and hyper-vigilant and it's all about defense and protection versus openness to opportunity, you know? So I do think that you're really capped at what you can create in the world. And I love that you brought that up, Richard, because I do believe that the entrepreneurs I work with, a huge part of why they work with me is because they have had very volatile childhoods, whether it was the country they're from or the culture, the specific neighborhood they grew up in. Some of them were physically abused and scared at home, you know, had, had parents that maybe were verbally, emotionally, or physically abusive. And that is carried in us. Like I believe that until we heal and feel and process these emotions related to these traumas, they're stuck and frozen, unprocessed in our bodies. And that those become real blocks for us. And as you mentioned, like that biography really becomes our biology where we're carrying in our nervous system, this fight or flight state with us, even when it's not accurate, even when it's not true or useful in our current environment, it's just what our nervous system has become accustomed to. And it's almost like there's a sense of safety that you get from feeling vigilant. It's like, if you, if you feel hypervigilant, then at least you feel prepared and ready to defend yourself. And so- what I've seen is that part of this work and part of what the book is really supporting is how to release these contractions from your system, how to really remove it at the nervous system memory. So it's not just like, okay, I mentally understand that these things are tied, but physically, how do you remove the activation and the feeling of vigilance in your body, the feeling of fight or flight in your body? And then how can you start to entrain your nervous system to these states of calm and relaxation so that you can make better decisions, right? Because I think we all know that we make better decisions when we're calm and centered than when we're flustered and afraid. Um, it's just sometimes we don't realize we have a choice in that because for so long we've become used to living in a vigilant state that it's all we know. Yeah. It's so the listeners hear 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 her out because this book is not just for entrepreneurs. This is like this is like life advice. <laughs> this is like families. This is like generational habits that have been passed on to children and children. And generational trauma. Yes, generational trauma, exactly. Because what resonated a lot with me was like and and sharing this on the podcast for the first time, because I haven't really like introduced my background onto the podcast, was like so I grew up in the south side of Phoenix here with gang violence. Um, my family separated. 
I was a part of a gang at a young age. I'm a survivor of child abuse and I've forgiven my father for that. And now we have the most beautiful relationship ever. Um, and my mom, I grew up with women in my life who really inspired me more so I've never had a male figure and knowing that I had to kind of digest that and kind of, um, like you say, deal with the contractions that were going on in, in my everyday life. I had to really go through that and be the first in my family to go to college, accomplish all these things and all this advice. Where were you, Victoria? I needed this, (laughs) but this is great that you're here now because I did it in my own way because I I love how you mentioned is like, there's many ways to like, I mean, there's no right or wrong way. There's just the way that works best for you. And I think what really worked best for me is keeping myself, turning any negative moment into something positive, just always thinking positive. And it wasn't like, excuse my language, it wasn't bullshit. Like I'm not lying about what happened to me. I just channeled things to something more positive so that I could put something out there for everybody, which is like acting, sports, music, and just Mm. things like that. I love that you shared that. Thank you, Jonathan. I think you're an example of what I say in the book is like alchemy, the alchemy of creation, which is that we take and transmute our contractions into the expansion of what you said, the sports and the acting. It's I believe all creation really comes from this place of being able to alchemize those dark places, the shadow places, the traumas, the wounds. And um, I, yeah, I think all the greatest art and beauty and creations on the planet really come from that kind of alchemy. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. So for this next question, I remember from a separate interview, you mentioned only working with founders who who, spe- who, are, who carry out specific missions. Please tell our audience about the kind of missions you look for in founders and about the importance of your, of your process. Yes. Thank you. Um, I feel one of the ways that I'm able to scale my work, because as you can imagine, like working with dozens, I do group work too, maybe hundreds it's not going to be at the level of impact that I hope, you know? And so what of the things that I do is I choose those leaders to be ones that I think are working on an important mission that I want to see exist in the world. And then that's how I scale my efforts as a coach to them. And so some of those examples are things like um, helping humans live in harmony with nature. So that could be around climate change. I'm supporting an entrepreneur right now who is uh, working on eliminating carbon emissions from cows, actually, which is like a huge contributor to climate change. So um, that's one example. I'm working with entrepreneurs who are also working on a more advanced, improved COVID vaccine. So one that is even more potent than the ones that are currently created. And so anyway, I love supporting founders that are working on something that I think has such global implications. And, um, and who I think are going to impact, you know, millions and billions of lives. And, and so I really look for that. But also, I would say it's not just that you're working on something important, but it's also that um, you're aligned with the mission. Because I think that there are sometimes people who might have a passion or a desire to make a specific impact. But when I talk to them, I can feel that they're not particularly inspired by what they're saying to me, you know? And so I have sometimes entrepreneurs who want to work with me who are working on something that I think could be useful for humanity, but it doesn't feel like it lights them up. It doesn't feel like it's actually the truth in their heart of what they're really here to do. And I feel like if you're not lit up about what you're here to do on the planet, then it's probably not it. There's probably like a forcing, like a not not a product market fit with like your mission essentially. And so, um, so that's something I also look for is alignment, that this is truly the thing that lights your soul on fire. So this is incredible because like, are you a Marvel fan, Victoria, by chance? I am. Yeah. I do feel like in some ways I'm putting my little team together. <laughs> yeah. The Avengers, right? And and I was also thinking like, like Victoria right now is a, is a sorcerer supreme. She living in like a Doctor Strange type world, bending reality <laughs> and, and really helping us tap into things. So for the Doctor Stranges out there, for the people who initially maybe have a hard time to really grasp this kind of information because it could be new to them. How would you respond to those people who may not be able to grasp that method or someone who would look at these practices or way of thinking and maybe not have an open mind of the idea because uh, of being in your thoughts, therapy, self-development, meditation? Because I could see some people be like, well, I don't know. What's this? Like, what's this about? I don't. It just for, for some people, it might not resonate uh, initially. Yeah, so I do think that that's why the same message needs many different messengers because I don't think that there's like a one-size-fits-all, you know. Um, I think a lot of what I teach in my work and in the book 
is ancient wisdom. So it's stuff that, you know, a lot of people have said in different ways. And what I tried to do in my book and I do with my clients who are mostly engineers is I do use language that is very practical. It doesn't sound magical. I think the book title is quite magical sounding because I I do believe that, you know, Steve Jobs, for instance, was known for the reality distortion field that he was able to create. So I really wanted people to get that sense of like bending reality. And when I say bending reality, I just want you to know that the reason I chose that title is because I think that we are all always co-creating our reality. It's just we're not doing it in a conscious way. And when we don't do it in a conscious way, we don't realize the ways we might be doing it from a place of fear, which actually ends up bending it in an unfavorable way for us. And so the book is really helping you bend reality consciously in the direction that you choose. And and so I do really um, prioritize using language that I think it's practical sounding, not magical sounding, that it hopefully resonates more because it doesn't require any faith or prerequisite belief. Like you can be completely new to personal development and understand the words that I've chosen to use in the book. And then I think you could also be someone who's read all the books and be like, wow, this is such a great synthesis. Like it feels like it summarizes everything I, I thought I mentally understood, you know? So so anyway, I really intended the book to be something that like meets you almost in the shallow end of the pool. And then by the end of the book takes you to the deep end. I think a lot of these types of books um, assume that you've already read a lot of books. So it kind of just drops you into the deep ocean. <laughs> and uh, I was really mindful of that for your listener. So if you feel like this is a little bit of a stretch for you, just know that the book is intended to guide you from the shallow end of the pool to the deep end. Yeah, accessibility is so key, right? In terms of how we speak so that people can be a built, like they can join the conversation too. And like you said, not have any knowledge, any prior knowledge and be able to just get in there and to be part of it. So Victoria, what are the benefits of an entrepreneur getting pie on their ego space? You said something similar <laughs> in another interview. So what are the benefits of getting pie on your ego space? <laughs> yeah, I, I alluded this earlier when I said that we have this impending doom generator that comes up with a bunch of what-if scenarios. And I think the reason we do this is because our ego feels like it would feel really silly if it didn't preemptively think of something that could happen. You know, like part of the reason our brains are always thinking of like all the fears that could happen is because we feel like we'd be, almost be embarrassed if we were caught off guard. But the reason why we're so afraid to be caught off guard by something that bad that could happen is because fear is ultimately like an anticipation of pain. And so when we're afraid something's going to happen, what we're really feeling is I'm not sure I would be okay if that scenario happened, right? So say like we have the dream of, of opening up our dream bakery, but our fears are like, I can't get the money. Who would who would want my cakes over someone else's cakes? Like, am I actually even that good at baking? What if I don't make it through the first month of business? And then say like you have a great month or even a great six months, your fears jump to, but what if it's just a short-term thing? What if I can't last a year? What if a competitor opens up next door? You know, and so there's always a next level of fear that will come with every level of success. So that is why I think learning how to walk with our fears is probably the biggest part of emotional mastery because your fears don't go away. I know a lot of us are thinking like, oh, I'll wait till I'm not so scared or I'm wait till my fears will go away. But I'm telling you, like, you're just going to have a new upgraded fear at every level of success. Um, you know, when I wrote this book, my first little fear was like, what if I don't know how to get it into the world? And then now that it's in the world, I'm like, what if people don't write good reviews? And then after that, it's like, what if, you know, what if, what if, what if? And it's like the levels just keep going up with every level of um, outcome. So when I say like getting pie on your ego's face, it's really that idea of, okay, like that's okay for me to be embarrassed of what if something happens that I didn't preemptively think about? If I didn't anticipate it, I'll be fine, you know? And I think um, one of the really important takeaways, I believe, from this is to know that no matter what, you will be okay. And I think that when we are children who've had tr hard upbringings, hard environments, the pain that we experienced was truly overwhelming. It was way too much for us to have handled at that age. And that leaves a memory in our body of, I don't know if I'll be safe. Like, I don't know if I'll be okay. Like, I remember being afraid for my life, you know, and that feeling in your body will be triggered by the fear at work of being fired or like the unexpected email. All of a sudden, everything that's scary starts to trigger the same life or death threat in your body. Um, and so what can happen is we don't think we would be okay. Like we don't know if we would survive it, right? There's this feeling of, gosh, if the whole world said X about me, I don't know if I could live anymore. Like that would be so embarrassing. I wouldn't want to leave my house anymore. 
And our body remembers it as like so debilitating because as a child, it's true that it really was that overwhelming. But what we have to remind ourselves as adults is that we are so much stronger than we were then. And every day we're getting more strong. And it's not that the problems go away. It's just that we become stronger so we can handle them more easily and with more grace. And, you know, I think that the problems that I face today are bigger than the problems that I was afraid of happening when I was 16, 21, 18. But the difference is I know that I've built up almost my emotional core, you know, kind of like how in um, fitness we build up our ab core strength. I've built up my emotional core, which means like I know I can handle things. Like I know that every time something has happened that I didn't want to happen, I cried about it. I screamed about it. I got, I moved through the emotions. I processed the emotions at the other side of it. I was a stronger version of myself, more prepared to take on even bigger goals and dreams. And so I think that's the biggest thing to, yeah, really take away. And the question to ask yourself is, okay, like I really want this dream. What's the worst thing that can happen? And when you come up with really the worst thing that can happen, you have to ask yourself, okay, well, not that this is going to happen, but if it happened, do I still want to go after my dream? You know, like I had an entrepreneur yesterday text me like, like I'm afraid, like what if I, you know, split up my co-founder, then everyone judges me and thinks like, this is the second time that this happened. It must be me. What's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, yeah. And let's say everyone believes that or thinks that about you. Would you still want to go after your dream? Would you still want to build this company? Would you still want to make your vision a reality. And if the answer is yes, I would still go after this, then you know you're ready and you're, you know, you can handle whatever can happen. If the answer to that question is I don't think I could handle that. I really think I would curl up into a ball and hide under a rock for the rest of my life. You're probably not ready to go after that dream and that's okay. Like you just need to build up more strength to then feel ready. Um, so yeah, that's a good question is like can I handle the flip side of my dream because everyone can handle the positive of the dream, right? If, if someone said, oh, do you want to have a best-selling Wall Street Journal bestseller? Do you want to ha- sell thousands of books? Do you want people to love your book? I'd be like, yeah, I'm so ready for that dream. But then if someone asked me, would you be ready for bad Amazon reviews? Would you be ready for people not liking it? Would you be ready for nobody buying the book? If the answer is that would crush my soul and I would cry forever, then no, I'm not ready to pursue that dream. <laughs> you know, um, So that's a good question is just like not to say it's going to happen, but if the worst case scenario happened – would you still go after it? Then you know you're emotionally strong enough to handle it. Wow. That's incredible. I didn't realize because growing up, I've had mentors that literally told me what you're telling me now. And it's like, like you said earlier is this is all ancient wisdom, like things and practices from different cultures. It was just translated differently amongst everybody in different areas of the world. And like, I'm getting that what you're telling me I'm getting from like a Mexican American, like Chicano, like uh, incredible mentor of mine who was like a first like male figure that I looked up to that I'd never seen someone look like me that was successful. And I listened and I internalized everything he said. And even like he tells me, you know, Jonathan, those emotions are going to come back. That same feeling exactly when you had as a child, they're coming back. It's just how you act on that. How do you how you respond to that? And like you said, how much more stronger you are. And just remembering that so that you don't fall back in that place that that you're afraid of because you like you're walking with fear. And I, I just love how you're being very honest about that. So thank you, Victoria, for sharing that. So so we're moving on to our uh, close to the end of the, the podcast. And I want to try this new segment with you. And it's called Mind Your Business. So I'll explain it to you essentially for the listeners in the future in our next episode. Whenever we have upcoming guests, maybe sometimes there's a question that we're a little bit shy of asking or that we're afraid of hearing the rejection or just whatever feelings we internalize. This is that. (laughs) This is that moment. You can ask that question. We will be the ones asking it for you. Now, we didn't get any people because I'm just starting it literally right now as we're recording this new segment. So I will ask you a few questions or two questions. And then uh, if you don't feel comfortable, all you got to say but with conviction and with character. Mind your own business. Mind your business, exactly. (laughs) So the first question is, what is the boldest move you had to make in order to get what you truly wanted in life? Mm, Great question. I think the boldest move I've made to date was leaving my venture capital job when everyone, I felt like everyone I knew was trying to break into VC, (laughs) Uh, leaving it without knowing what I was going to do next. Like I think that all the advice I got was like, wait till you line up your next really impressive sounding employer and make sure the brand sounds even more impressive than the brand you're leaving. And 
that's when you leave. And I was like, I just know that this isn't it. And I also know that I need to detox before I can tell and hear my voice again to know what is it. So I think the boldest move was just leaving a really high paying job that had a lot of certainty, that had a lot of prestige to not do something I didn't know what I was going to do next. Awesome. Thank you. Next question. What big celebrities that most people know are open about being advised, coached by you? Oh, okay. Um, I've worked extensively for years with Elon Musk's cousin, whose name is Peter Rive. Oh, yeah. And he started <laughs> um, Solar City. And uh, I've worked with the co-founders of Honey that um, were recently acquired by PayPal for $4 billion. And then another fun one that I don't know if you know, but those in the designer world know is I've worked with Rosa Park, who is a founder of Serial Magazine, which is a really beautiful travel design magazine. So if you're in that world, you would know that company. Uh, Yeah. Awesome. And then final question that just kind of came up on me, but uh, which entrepreneurs do you wish you would have worked worked with or coached, but you didn't initially because of the person they were? the kind of person they were or their personality. <laughs> that is going to get me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but I would say that um, I won't confirm or deny, but if you think of some of the biggest companies that have gone public, tech companies recently that have had CEOs fired from their businesses, you'll know some of the, yeah, those are some of the founders that I would have loved to support because I think that my work is exactly the kind of thing that would have helped those types of entrepreneurs. But it's a double-edged sword because sometimes helping the really difficult ones are not the most fun for me (laughs) to work with because of their personalities. But I do think that they are exactly the type of person who could benefit from this kind of work. You're out there. I know you're listening. (laughs) But Jonathan, mind your business. No, just kidding. (laughs) Well, um, thank you for being on our show, Victoria. Tell our listeners how they can follow you and if they're looking to tap into their minds to bend reality where they can find your book. Yeah. So I can be followed on Instagram at Victoria E. Song. And um, also I'd love for anyone who's tuning in and has read the book, who wants to go deeper, I'm doing a new live course called Bending Reality. Um, And so that one is actually going live this fall. So you can find it on my website at www.victoriasong.me. And then thanks to Simon & Schuster, the book is available wherever books are sold. And so you can get that wherever you like at an independent bookstore, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, And I'm just so excited and appreciative to be on your show. Your questions are so fun. And I feel like I got to share things I haven't gotten to share before. Thank you. That means a lot to us. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much, Victoria. And for those tuning in, make sure to follow and subscribe to us on all streaming platforms, including our socials at Go Entrepreneur Yourself. And leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts. Don't be afraid. Mm -hmm. Leave that review. (laughs) 